Lesson 9 for May 21 through to 27, Idols of the Soul and Other Lessons from Jesus. Sabbath afternoon, May 21. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as sinners. We come to you as people who are looking in your word to find what it tells us for today and for the future. And as we do so, we look at the life of Jesus this week. And we look at some of the interesting things that he said. And we confess our need of him and confess the need for the Holy Spirit to guide us and bless us as we open your word this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's read that again, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? As human beings, we are products of our environment, of our culture. These greatly shape our values, our beliefs and attitudes. Whether you were raised in a big metropolitan area or in a village with no clean water, it makes no difference. The culture, the environment that you grew up in has greatly made you what you are. And even if you are able to go to a new environment, the one you have been raised in will leave its mark on you until the grave. Unfortunately, to some degree, most of our environments and cultures work against the principles of God's kingdom. The world, after all, is a fallen world, and its values, morals and customs often reflect that fallen state. What else would they reflect? It's just so hard for us to see because we are so immersed in our culture and environment. The work of God in our hearts is, among other things, to point us to the values, morals and standards of God's kingdom. As we will see this week, those values, morals and standards often differ greatly from what we have been born into and reared in. The disciples had to learn these lessons. We do too. Sunday, May 22, The Greatness of Humility Who doesn't aspire to greatness? That is, who doesn't want to be great or do great things? This desire doesn't always have to arise from selfishness or from ego or arrogance. It could simply be doing the very best that you can at whatever you can, hoping perhaps that what you do could even bring blessings upon others, as we read in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. The problem, however, comes in defining greatness. How easy for our fallen human minds to understand the concept in a way that vastly differs from God's view. Question. Read Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through to 4. According to Jesus, what is true greatness, and how are we to understand it in a way that we can apply it to our own lives? 
Well, Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To define true greatness, Jesus called a child to stand before him and said, Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't talk about being a great preacher or a great businessman or even a great philanthropist. Greatness in the sight of God is what we are inside, not what we do externally, though no doubt what's inside will impact what we do externally. Notice, Jesus defines greatness in a way that most people in the world don't. After all, who wakes up one day and decides that the greatness he or she wants in life is to be as humble as a little child? It seems strange to us to aspire to something like that. But this is only because we are so tainted by the world's principles, ideas and concepts. What does it mean to be humble like a little child? One of the indicators of humility is obedience, putting God's word ahead of our own will. If you're on the wrong path in your life, then that's because you're on your own path. The solution is simple. Humble yourself and get back on God's path, through obedience to his word. If Adam and Eve had stayed humble, they would not have sinned. It's interesting to consider that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge were both located in the middle of the garden. Often, life and destruction aren't far apart. The difference is humility. And so to finish today, what are some other attitudes and ideas we hold only because of our contact with the world? Attitudes and ideas that are in conflict with the Word of God. Bring your answer to class on Sabbath. Monday, May 23, The Greatness of Forgiveness One of the worst consequences of the fall is seen in interpersonal relationships. From Adam trying to blame Eve for his sin in Genesis 3.12, to this moment on earth today, our race has been ravaged and degraded by conflict between individuals. Unfortunately, conflicts are not just in the world, but in the church as well. Question Read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 35. What does Jesus tell us here? Why, though, do we often not follow his words to us? Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, with his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Let's face it, it's easier to go behind someone's back to complain about him or her than to go directly to the person and deal with the issue. And that is precisely why we don't want to do it, despite being told to do it by the Lord. Yes, Jesus teaches us to go directly to someone who has hurt us and to attempt to restore the relationship. If the person is not receptive, then there are additional instructions. For... Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Verse 20. Look at the context here. It's about the discipline and restoration of another person. We tend to apply this verse more broadly. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is present when a small group is attempting to restore a believer. This is the beautiful work of redemption, and it begins with humbly doing the right thing, and talking directly with someone who has hurt you. This, too, would be another example of greatness in those who do it. Question. Read verses 21 to 35 again. What crucial point is Jesus making? Beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. 
Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, with his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow-servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow-servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. When Jesus says to forgive seventy times seven, what he's really saying is that we must never stop forgiving someone. Jesus is serious about the necessity of forgiveness, not only for others' benefit, but for our own. Look at how strong the parable is that he told to make his point. We can be forgiven a lot of things. That's what the gospel is all about. Forgiveness, as we read in lots of other places in the Bible, such as Exodus 32.32, Acts 5.31 and Colossians 1.14. But if we don't forgive others the way we have been forgiven by God, we can face dire consequences. So to finish today... Why is it so important, then, to dwell upon the cross, upon the forgiveness that we've been given because of it? If God did this for you, if this is what it took to forgive you, how can you learn to forgive others, no matter how impossible that forgiveness might now appear to be? Tuesday, May 24, Idols of the Soul Question. Read Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. As New Testament Christians, how are we to relate to this story today, and what lessons can we take from it for ourselves? Well, let's begin Matthew 19 at verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, 
All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Though not much is told us specifically about this man, we can pick up a few salient points. He was rich, a ruler, as it says in Luke 18.18, 18, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And apparently he was a very scrupulous follower of God's law. We can see too that he sensed something was missing from his life. It reminds me a bit of the story of Martin Luther. Though outwardly a pious monk, Inside, he was dissatisfied with his spiritual life, and he struggled with assurance of salvation. In both cases, the men sensed that the great gap between themselves and God was not going to be filled by their outward works. As Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 518, the ruler had a high estimate of his own righteousness. He did not really suppose that he was defective in anything, yet he was not altogether satisfied. He felt the want of something that he did not possess. Could not Jesus bless him as he blessed the little children and satisfy his soul want? End of quote. Some people might argue that in this story, Jesus is teaching that we receive eternal life based on our good works. After all, in Matthew 19.17, Jesus said... If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. If this were the only text on that subject, one could make an argument here. But too many other texts, especially in Paul's writings, teach that the law does not save, but rather points to our need of salvation. As we read in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And Galatians 3.21-22 Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. 
But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Instead, Jesus must have been guiding this man to see his own great need of more than what he was doing. After all, if keeping the law alone could do it, then the man would already have salvation, since he was scrupulous in keeping it. The gospel needs to penetrate the heart, to go right to the idols of the soul, and whatever we are holding on to that's an impediment to our relationship to Jesus needs to be gone. In this case, it was his money. Jesus notes how hard it is for a rich man to be saved, and yet, shortly after this dialogue, Luke records a beautiful story of exactly that happening in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through to 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So to finish today, if you were in the position of the rich man and you asked Jesus the same question, what do you think he would say to you? Dwell on the implications of your answer. Wednesday, May 25. What's in it for us? Right after the incident with the rich ruler, what happens? Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? That's Matthew 19, verse 27. Nothing in the text says what prompted this question, but it could easily be in direct response to the rich man's departure from Jesus. Peter seemed to be implying that, unlike this man and others who either rejected Jesus or stayed with him a while and then left, he and the other disciples had left all for him. They were remaining faithful to him, even at great personal cost. Thus the question is, what's in it for us? From our perspective today, we might see this question as another indication of how hard-hearted and spiritually dense the disciples were, and to some degree that's true. On the other hand, 
why not ask a question like Peter's? Why shouldn't he wonder what he would get by following Jesus? After all, life here is hard, even for those who have it in the best. We are all subject to the traumas, the disappointments, the pain of our fallen existence. In the 1800s, an Italian intellectual named Giacomo Leopardi wrote about the overriding unhappiness of human beings, saying that, As long as man feels life, he also feels displeasure and pain. Life is often a struggle, and the good in this world doesn't always even out with the bad. So, Peter's question makes perfect sense. Because life is hard, what advantage comes to us from following Jesus? What should we expect from making the kind of commitment that Jesus asked of us? And that brings us to our question. How did Jesus respond to this question in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, through to chapter 20, verse 16? Beginning at Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, who went out early in the morning to hire labourers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the labourers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, Ye also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the labourers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day? But he answered one of them, and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours, and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Notice, Jesus didn't rebuke Peter for selfishness or the like. He gave him first a very straightforward answer, and then the parable regarding the workers and their wages. Though over the centuries a great deal of discussion has ensued over the meaning of the parable, the basic point is clear. We will get from Jesus what he has promised us. So to finish today, 
If someone were to ask you, what will I get by serving Jesus? What would you answer? Thursday, May 26, we are able. To truly appreciate today's story about James and John and their mother in Matthew 20, first read Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. This event occurred when Jesus and his disciples at first set out for Jerusalem, just days before James and John asked if they could sit on Jesus' left and right in the kingdom. So our question is, read Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 27. What does Luke 9, 51 to 56 tell us about how ready James and John were to sit on the left and right of Jesus in the kingdom? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So now let's read Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father." And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. James and John the sons of thunder, were still clearly more worried about their own future than about the salvation of those around them, even after they had been sent out to evangelise the surrounding areas. In its own way, this story is somewhat like what we looked at yesterday, with Peter's question regarding what they could get by following Jesus. Look carefully at Jesus' answer here. In verse 22 he said, You do not know what you ask, 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In other words, to be identified with Jesus' future glory means first to be identified with his suffering and death, something that they had not anticipated and were not ready for. The fact that they immediately answered, We are able, shows that they didn't know what he was warning them about. They would learn eventually. An interesting contrast is presented here, one that we need to think about for ourselves. As we saw in yesterday's study, we've been promised wonderful things, even eternal life, if we follow Jesus. At the same time, too, the Bible makes it clear that in this world, following Jesus comes with a cost, sometimes a very big one. Jesus himself later told Peter that he would die a martyr's death in John chapter 21 and verses 18 and 19. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Then he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Many believers throughout history and even today have paid a great price for following Jesus. In fact, it might be wise to ask ourselves if there is something wrong with our walk if indeed we have not paid a steep price for following the Lord. Whatever the price, though, it's cheap enough. So to finish today, what does following Christ cost you? Think hard on the implications of your answer. Friday, May 27. Through the centuries, some people have argued for what is sometimes called natural law. Though it comes in many shapes and forms, the idea is that we can derive from the natural world moral principles that can help guide our actions. In one sense, as Christians, we believe that nature is God's second book. We could accept that there's some truth to this. For instance, See Paul's discourse in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, about what people should have learned about God from the natural world. Let's have a look there, Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from the heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like, in, like, made like corruptible men, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed for ever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. At the same time, too, we can't forget that this is a fallen world, and we live in it, and we view it with fallen, corrupted minds. So it should be no surprise that we could come away with wrong moral lessons from nature. For example, one of the greatest mortal minds in antiquity, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, argued for slavery based on his understanding of nature. For him, nature revealed two classes of people, one of which was as inferior to others as a beast to man. So for them, a life of slavish subjection is advantageous. This is just one of many examples we can find of how worldly principles, values and ideas conflict with those of God's kingdom, and which is why, regardless of where we are born and brought up, we need to study God's word and from it derive the morals, values and principles that should govern our lives. Nothing else of itself is reliable. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Jesus calls us to forgive all who hurt us. This includes our own families. Think about someone close to you who has hurt you. Though your scars might always be there, how do you reach a point where you can forgive? 2. In class, discuss your answer to Sunday's questions about the clash between your society's values and those of the Bible. How are we as Christians to work through those differences? 3. Dwell more on the idea of greatness as having the humility of a child. What does this mean to us as Christians? And four, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in obeying God's law, the Ten Commandments, and rightly so. What, though, should the story of the rich ruler tell us about why, however important outward obedience to God's law is, it's not enough, and that true Christianity while including obedience to the law of God, includes more. Inside Story our mission story this week is titled Coming Home, Part 1. I was introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist Church when my mother married a Seventh-day Adventist. I was in my early teens when I started attending the Adventist Church. 
The two things that kept me coming were the Sabbath School and Pathfinder leaders, and the great programs they planned. They were so good that we kids never wanted to miss, and we knew that if we missed a week or two, we would get a visit, sometimes from the whole Sabbath School class. By the time I was 15, my parents were no longer going to church, but I kept going because I loved it so much. The Pathfinders were planning a camporee and I wanted to go. The pastor drove me home so I could ask my stepdad if he would pay for my way to go to the camporee. But instead of encouraging me, he told me I should spend my time studying instead of going camping. Then he said if I really wanted to go on this camporee, I could pack my things right then and leave for good. I gathered my things together and went home with the pastor. My mum's marriage failed and she lost interest in church, but I had found something I wasn't willing to give up. I moved in with my grandmother. Even though grandma wasn't an Adventist, she encouraged me to attend church. Throughout those difficult teen years, the church pastor and church members were my family, but the pastor left the following year and I felt as if I had lost my own father. Things weren't the same after that, and in time I attended church less often. My grandmother worked hard weaving mats and making handicrafts to sell me to a good school. I hated to see her struggle, so I asked the school for help. The priest who ran the school told me that they would help me financially if, when I finished and got a job, I would pay them back. I decided to do this. I went home and told my grandmother that I had a scholarship. I knew this wasn't really true, but I wanted to help her. I kept my promise, and when I graduated, I got a job to repay the school. But the school wasn't always a good influence on me. Some of the alumni encouraged athletes to drink alcohol. This started me on some bad habits. I was enjoying the benefits of my, of my athletic abilities, but in the back of my mind I knew what was right and wrong, and my conscience bothered me. And this story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs>